Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Have you joined EMDA's new initiative called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC? Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. Um, so welcome, everybody, to our Geriatric Journal Club uh, in Colorado on this uh, Thursday, May 6th. Today we have uh, two guest speakers. We have Dr. Leah Watson, who's going to discuss um, a couple of medications uh, in regards to the treatment or maybe lack of treatment of uh, dementia. And uh, then that'll be followed by Dr. Singh Pallet, who's going to talk to us about uh, oxygen use in COPD, specifically, I believe, nocturnal oxygen use. So with that, why don't we just go ahead and get started. And uh, just so everyone's aware, um, and hopefully we will have some time for questions, is when we get to the point to ask questions, you can unmute yourself or simply type something into the chat box, and I can uh, dictate that to the speakers. With that, uh, Dr. Watson. Thank you, Travis. It is supreme dedication that you're calling in from Epcot. Just want to acknowledge that. Um, and I'm going to apologize right now ahead of time because my dogs apparently are going to bark the whole time I'm talking. So, because the UPS man always arrives when you have to be on Zoom. Anyway, so what I'm going to talk about is two, two things prompted this when Greg and I were passing around articles this month. The first, and Dr. Annenberg as well, who's always on top of the pharmaceutical news for us. Um, the first is about Nuplazid, Pimavanserin, which is a drug that has already been approved for um, psychotic symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And it has been hotly um, propagated as the first possible ever treatment for psychosis of all types of dementia. So any dementia-related psychosis is the term they use, DRP. So they've been out on the talking trail really promoting this drug in anticipation of what they thought was going to be an approval for that indication, and it turns out that they have now put that on hold again um, for good reason if you look at the data. So they were all geared up that this was going to be our first ever approved drug for the agitation, I mean, for psychosis of dementia, and it looks like um, that is not going to happen. They're going to kick the can down the road a little long. The FDA issued what, what, what they call a complete response letter um, saying that, in fact, the phase three harmony study um, did not meet the statistical significance required in some subgroups of dementia um, and is currently going to kick this down the road. Again, I was actually, frankly, totally expecting it was going to get approved based on what I've heard from the insider folks that I hear talking about this. Um, so I'm very pleased to see that they're going to halt it. I do not think it has ever been a miracle drug. It was um, initially approved on a sort of a orphan emergency basis for the use in Parkinson's because there are so few drugs. And I've talked about it at another journal club, how they created a very specific set of outcomes basically to fit the drug trial. Um, there actually have been some excess deaths with regard to Nuplazid, and it's never been um, 
looked at in comparison to other currently used atypicals for which um, there's no reason to believe they would be any better or worse. So they tout the drug based on its apparent ability to cause less in the way of motor symptoms, but it has certainly not been what I've seen. Um, so I'm frankly relieved and pleased that we've kicked the can down the road and hopefully it is actually not gonna get um, approved because I think it, it's um, in, inferior to the ones that we already have on the market and comes with all of the same um, issues with regard to stroke mortality, prolonged QT interval, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, so that was a potential treatment of a um, behavioral and psychological symptom of dementia that's now pushed down the road. So we still don't have anything approved for that. And then to turn to the other topic, um, the topic that's been at the front of everyone's mind in the dementia world for the last two decades, but um, more enthusiastically in the last five years is the look at monoclonal antibodies to target specific amyloid in the brain. And there have in fact been 25 or so studies of monoclonal antibodies to target um, uh, amyloid and they have all been consistently negative or stopped for harm. But interestingly, in November, um, the drug aducanumab, which is from Biogen, was looked at a second time in a post hoc data analysis as drug companies are sometimes want to do when they can't find what they're looking for in the original studies. Because again, we have such limited um, treatment, um, actually no treatment for dementia. They have now broadened um, their um, lowered the threshold, if you will, to consider um, new data around um, aducanumab, which has been hotly contested and has been quite contentious and will be reviewed again um, in June. So one of the things that happened um, in the July 8th um, meeting was that people actually voted no on the drug based on the current data because they thought the post hoc uh, analysis was clearly biased to bring in given that their initial two phase three studies were actually already stopped for futility. And so there's also some concern that the FDA is, has been biased and has a, a little too cozy relationship with the, with the folks at Biogen. If you're interested in the drama of the pharmaceutical world, a whole bunch has been written about this in the last year um, including a viewpoint that Greg sent back out this week, um, authored, lead authored by Caleb Alexander, um, who was actually on the review committee and goes on to explain in great detail why the data do not support and uh, he disagrees with approving the medication. Just, just to give a little context about um, the monoclonal antibodies and how they would be used, it would be an infusion that would happen um, once a month and have to occur in an infusion uh, center. And for those that aren't familiar with the previous data, uh, the attack of the amyloid in the brain actually comes with some significant side effects. So about 42% of people in these trials that ever got treated with these antibodies had what is understood to be amyloid related imaging abnormalities, which showed both edema and, um, and, and blood accumulation from hemosiderin which can actually be um, understood to be like a stroke. So these are, can be very dangerous medications. Um, they're difficult to use and to get, they're going to be expensive um, and they already are known to cause harm with very little in the way of, if any, positive outcome results. 
So that's one big issue. The other issue that um, prompted this discussion to start was thinking about how we as a country are gonna handle it if in fact disease modifying therapies for Alzheimer's do get approved because we really lack the resources and infrastructure to, um, to do that well in this country. Foremost that we do not have the, the first stage of support in place, which is that um, it's gonna require specialist um, psychiatrists or neurologists or specially trained geriatricians to actually do the initial workup for the target group, which would be, be people with mild cognitive impairment. And then once they are identified, um, which is tricky at best, then they have to be referred for PET imaging to actually identify the amyloid in the brain, um, which is an entirely different um, set of barriers. And of course, everybody and their brother is gonna want to get anything that they think could possibly be helpful to keep you converting from MCI to AD. Um, so we have to deal with all of the psychological um, issues around people seeking treatment and wanting treatment. So there's, there's a ton of issues. The other thing to me that has always stuck out since this entire literature evolved is the fact that 30% of us um, have plaques in our brains regardless of our propensity to ever get Alzheimer's disease. So how we're going to effectively discern um, what is path pathogenic plaque versus plaque that would never have caused a problem is something that still has not been solved. So it's, it's a huge issue. So the PET imaging, the fact that normal people can have plaques, the fact that all 25 plus studies have been negative and now they're pulling in post hoc data to try to find some little signal um, really makes this quite suspect. They have compared this actually in this editorial. Interestingly, this guy said, it's kind of like the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. Someone first fires a shotgun at the barn and then puts a target around it with a, where the bullet holes are and says they hit it. So clearly there's some cherry picking of data. And as anyone can imagine, because of the vast um, tsunami of what is gonna be dementia diagnoses, there's a lot of skin in the game about being the first one to the market with any potential disease modifying uh, treatment, just because the volume of those living with mild cognitive impairment is just um, enormous and growing every day. Currently we think, you know, 18 million or so people, I mean, in the United States. So I'll stop there. I think my, my main gist of the point is, is uh, very clear, which is that I don't think this has any chance of that it should be um, passed, but I'm afraid that it, that it ultimately might be approved and we're then going to have to deal with all of the downstream consequences of what's coming, but we're still, we're on hold for the moment. So let me stop and see if anybody has a, a question or two before I turn it over to Singh. Uh, yeah, this is Travis. I did want to ask if there's anything new with Mufazit, or is this the same data, the same sort of effort to try to get this approved because of the financial windfall, um, or if there's any actual recent data that shows any kind of change in potential efficacy? No, there's there's no there's none at all. It's an it's an extension of the original trial, looking at different subgroups. So. It's, there's nothing new under the sun. And in fact, for those that don't know, pimavanserin is a quite old drug. It was studied for use in schizophrenia years ago and didn't work well and got put in the back seat somewhere and got pulled back out, which is sadly this story of antipsychotic uh, drug development um, in this country anyway. So it's actually a very old drug. So there's nothing new under the sun. Um, they're doing, again, post hoc analyses. 
um, trying to be a finding in search of a cause um, to show that this can be approved. And I will just say anecdotally, um, I've seen one patient ever get better with regard to these symptoms that had Parkinson's um, and it was very short lived. So I just don't, I don't think of it as a very efficacious drug, but it's been highly marketed. Dr. Watson? Yes. Dr. Watson, have you uh, changed your mind about what you think is the first line of therapy for DRP? Um, you know, what I typically do, Alex, is it's, it really depends on a number of things, which is a, not a cop-out. You know, it, it really does, depending on whether the psychotic symptoms are distressing and all of that. But if right. it rises, if it rises to, to my level, sort of the way I think about what constitutes the use of an antipsychotic, which would be distressing psychotic symptoms, you know, not just benign ones, and or safety issues with regard to aggression, unprovoked aggression. If it meets one of those two criteria, the two, the two drugs I, I usually start with are risperidone or olanzapine, depending on the side effect profile that you want to exploit. So if someone's obese and has diabetes um, and needs to be a little more activated, I start with risperidone. And if they're the opposite, I, I start with olanzapine. Uh, Leah, I have a question uh, for the monoclonal antibodies for dementia. Were there some clinical um, side effects or downsides to taking that besides like what you mentioned, the downstream effects? Yeah, so there was um, confusion. There was lethargy. And um, they actually, a, a dropout rate was one of the primary outcomes. So tolerability of the drug. And that did not show, um, it showed that it was less tolerable for those reasons. So confusion, lethargy, um, I think sleep, sleepiness is the term they used. So people didn't feel great on it either. And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Singh Pallet, who's going to talk to us about the use of nocturnal oxygen with COPD. Thank you, Travis. And I'm definitely not at Epcot Center, so hope you're enjoying yourself. But I chose this article about nocturnal oxygen use in COPD, and it's called The Randomized Trial of Nocturnal Oxygen in COPD from New the New England Journal from last September. And this is interesting to me because when I'm on my nursing home rounds, I spend a lot of time adjusting that nasal cannula positioning, not just making sure that the prongs are sticking in the right place, 
or that the tube isn't causing abrasions over the ears, you know, or on the nose and the face, but also just trying to avoid tripping over the tubing as I'm making my way around the bed or the chair. And as a society, the risks and benefits of oxygen therapy is important to consider. According to this article, home oxygen therapy comes in second place only after hospitalizations as the most expensive healthcare expenditure associated with COPD. And if you've taken a look at this study, if you're on the email list with Dr. Gom, you'll know the final conclusion, which was that using nocturnal oxygen in COPD has not been shown to improve survival or progression of COPD. And I'd like to explain who this applies to and point out some special aspects of this study. So who does this apply to? The study focused on patients with established diagnoses of COPD. So not heart failure, not other lung diseases, not sleep apnea. In COPD, oxygen desaturation at nighttime is thought to occur from alveolar hypoventilation and VQ mismatch. In long-term, hypoxemia can lead to right heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, and death. And when people with COPD have a documented daytime desaturation, 24-hour continuous oxygen is prescribed. And I do that constantly, and, and previous studies actually show that at least 15 hours a day of oxygen can improve physiological markers. But what about when a person only desaturates at nighttime? Does adding the supplemental nocturnal oxygen help? In this study, nocturnal hypoxemia was diagnosed after people had overnight pulse ox recordings showing at least 30% of the recording time with an oxygen desaturation that was less than 90%. So 30% of the time spent below 90% oxygen saturation. And these studies were checked twice on each study participant. And the intervention was neat. The patients in this study were randomly assigned to either receive an oxygen concentrator to use at night or placebo, which was a sham concentrator. And presumably these Sham concentrators looked and sounded like the real thing, but they would just blow around air. And the oxygen flow rate was titrated to achieve oxygen saturations of over 90% for at least 90% of the recording time. And this study even included a sham flow rate adjustment procedure. People would adjust their sham concentrators too. And after making sure that the baseline characteristics in each group were very similar, and following the patients for three to four years, there was no significant difference between the groups in terms of death, progression to long-term oxygen use, or both. Secondary outcomes of COPD exacerbations, hospitalizations, and scores on quality of life questionnaires were the same between the two groups. The majority of patients required um, a flow rate of two liters per minute, and the mean oxygen or sham oxygen use every night was around six to seven hours. And the total time of exposure to oxygen did not modify this treatment effect. But, this is journal clubs, I have to say, but the study's goal for recruitment, based on their estimates of the power needed for the study, was to recruit 600 patients, but they only got 243. The trial took place in hospitals in Canada, France, and Spain. And based on the data from this study alone, really they could make no conclusion as to a positive or negative effect 
shown on survival or progression of COPD. What they did instead was combine their data with prior studies on oxygen use in COPD. And when they did that, the authors concluded that there is not enough evidence to suggest a benefit for the use of nocturnal oxygen in patients with COPD and isolated nighttime hypoxemia. Now, one of those prior studies that was referred to is the accompanying article that we sent out in the Journal Club email. And Dr. Gum found this um, is the Annals of Internal Medicine from 1980. Now, this older study looked at the use of continuous versus nocturnal oxygen in COPD. It showed that when people meet the criteria for using daytime oxygen, if they only use it at night, that is associated with a higher mortality. And one of the study sites in the 1980 study was the University of Colorado. So thank you, Greg, for finding that. But what does this study mean for me and my patients? Well, I don't want to under or over prescribe oxygen. If a patient with COPD meets criteria for continuous oxygen and he or she can tolerate it, I'm going to prescribe it and I'm going to encourage my patient to use it. But continuous oxygen therapy is associated with decreased mortality in COPD. But if the person with COPD only has oxygen desaturation at nighttime, like when they lay in bed and when they're sleeping, and it's not due to CHF and it's not due to sleep apnea or some other disease, nocturnal oxygen does not have to be prescribed. It has not been shown to improve mortality or prevent disease progression. Yes, there will always be some people who swear by their oxygen therapy, and they will say if they cannot sleep and they cannot breathe without it, that's fine. And there will also be those people who meet criteria for supplemental oxygen use all day or at night, but or all day, but if they know that the mortality bits, the mortality benefits are going to be two or three or four years into the future, for some of those residents in our nursing homes, the daily hazards of using oxygen aren't worth it right now. So like any other therapeutic intervention, I'm going to use the evidence I have on hand and individualize the prescription for my patient. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pallet. Um, I do have a quick question. So is there uh, anything that distinguishes the, uh, the criteria for the nocturnal um, oxygen use? Um, and I've always inferred, maybe incorrectly, that then if their oxygen saturations drop at night, then they probably also drop with exertion. And so often coupled the recommendations for nocturnal oxygen with oxygen with activity, particularly in strenuous activity going on um, outings or appointments. Um, is there anything that you read or felt that even though the data suggested that there was no benefit to the nocturnal, but was there anything that teased out the use of oxygen with uh, exertion activities? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, the studies that I looked at here did not distinguish exertional oxygen requirements from resting oxygen requirements. And in fact, in one of the, the older one, the 1980 study, they did look at some exertional, but they lumped it into daytime. Presumably the exertion that causes hypoxemia is kind of a daytime activity and different from the, um, the hypoxemia that occurs when someone's sleeping. So when someone's sleeping, it's more the, the alveoli being squished down or there's um, not oxygenating different parts of their lungs. And 
So I think that physiologically, they make a little distinction there between the nighttime use of oxygen and daytime. And then also just the timing um, when someone's sleeping, you know, that's presumably like six to nine hours, whereas the daytime is going to be more on the order of the 15 hour use of oxygen. So is it how much oxygen you're using each day or the times that you're using it because of, of the physiology of your lungs during those times? I'm not sure. But I'm sorry, Travis, I don't have any correlation there to tell you what to do if you know, you're suspecting just exertional dyspnea and hypoxemia. All right, thank you, Sam. If uh, anyone else has any questions, you can just unmute yourself or you can in the chat box. One second, Tim. Yes, was the uh, oxygen delivery always via nasal cannula for these people in these studies? Yes, in both of these studies, it was limited strictly to nasal cannula. Um, so for sure, they weren't using any like CPAP or BiPAP because they weren't sleep apnea patients. And they didn't um, study people who were using like a face mask for delivery of oxygen. So would that make a difference and be more efficient? I don't know. Was oh, there ahead. any consideration given to patients who are CO2 retainers? The 1980 study did look at, try to distinguish between CO2 retainers versus non-CO2 retainers. And um, I, there was no significant change in terms of, you know, if they would benefit more or less from oxygen. Okay, thank you. Yeah, in both of these studies, they were checking ABGs on people on a regular basis. Um, in 1980, they were actually doing cardiac casts on them every six months as well. I didn't see them repeat that in the, the study, the newest study. Thank you, everybody, for taking your time out of your day to join us. And uh, like Dr. mentioned, if you have any ideas for future topics, please uh, give him a call or email, um, and we'll try to include them. And with that, I hope everyone has a good day. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.